Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We are beginning a new focus this morning in our verse-by-verse study through John's Gospel because we're turning from chapter 11 into chapter 12, and we're beginning a new focus because John begins a new focus here in this passage. I've entitled this section, Jesus is Savior, because what we will see John focus in on with this great precision is the last week of Jesus's life. Roughly half of the Gospel of John focuses on seven days. And the days that are leading up to that fateful day, that Good Friday, when Jesus would purchase our salvation. Uh, We can mark Holy Week, we can mark the beginning of this final week by this event, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, when he would ride on the foal of a donkey at the shouts of the crowds, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you let your eyes scan down in your Bible in chapter 12, you notice that's the next section here in chapter 12. And Lord willing, we'll cover that next Sunday. Well, this week I reviewed all four gospels and I wanted to know when do each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mark this triumphal entry into Jerusalem in their accounts. And so in Matthew, he puts it in chapter 21. There are 28 chapters in Matthew. Mark puts it in chapter 11. There are 16 chapters in Mark. And Luke records it in chapter 19. There are another five, 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And so clearly, if you consider each of the Gospel accounts, each author puts a considerably inordinate amount of time and emphasis on this last week, on this final week, as compared to the rest of his life. Proportionally, much more ink And paper is used to communicate these seven days than the rest of Jesus's life. And of course, John uh, uh, really takes the cake and nearly half of his gospel is about these seven days. Why? Why do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each put such an emphasis on this relatively short length of time in Jesus's life? Well, if you were here last week, I gave you an answer to a question. The question is, can you say in one word, what is Christianity? Do you remember the word I gave you? Substitution. Substitution. That is the word. Substitution. And this last week is all about Jesus's substitutionary atonement for we who are sinners in deserving judgment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are not biographers. And so these are not biographies of Jesus's life. They are evangelists. And so these four accounts are evangels, which is another word for gospel. These are gospel accounts that present to us Jesus is Savior. And what a good truth that is. But here in John chapter 12, John begins this last week account of Jesus's life by giving us the anointing of Jesus by Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who had just been raised from the dead. And in chapter 12, we return now to the village of Bethany. Uh, Chapter 11 concluded with Jesus leaving Bethany because there was a great threat on his life. Orders had been given by the religious rulers. If anybody knows where Jesus is, turn him in because we want to kill him. And so Jesus leaves and goes some 12 miles away to a village named Ephraim, but now he very purposefully returns back to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, where it will all go down because he is determining his timetable nobody else. So let's look 
six days before Passover at John chapter 12. This is the inspired word of God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Many of you who are parents have probably experienced this phenomenon that I myself have experienced with my kids and now my grandkids. I find myself repeating things that my parents used to say. Anybody with me on that? I find myself saying things that my dad and my mom used to say. Uh, One of the things that I say a lot to my children and now my grandchildren is, turn the light out when you leave the room. It's not an exaggeration, I don't think, to say I've probably turned off lights at least a thousand times in my life as a parent. That's an underestimation, I believe. Uh, Or we'll say things like this, close the door, you weren't born in a barn. Sometimes I say this and my dad said this, close the door, I'm not heeding Hamilton County, right? Now, why do we say these things to our children and our grandchildren? Because... Energy costs money. Electricity is expensive. And so every time you leave the door open, it may cost me a quarter. Come on, close that door, will you? So we, we want to conserve energy. We want to save money. We, my wife and I, we come by this frugality, let's call it, very honestly. My parents were very frugal, and particularly Amy's dad is very frugal. We don't like wasting money. I don't mind drinking milk past the expiration date or eating food after. I'd say it's just a suggestion. You can still eat it. It's okay. I don't like throwing money away. We want to be good stewards, right, of the resources God's given us. And this is really tied up even in the first command God gave Adam in the garden. He said, look over the earth subdue the earth. And part of that means to be stewards of God's creation, to be stewards of the earth we have. And so when we come to this account of Mary anointing Jesus with this very expensive perfume, uh, it's easy for us to recognize why it could be described as wasteful. And that just kind of grates against the natural tendency of most of us to be conservative. Now, the heading in this section in the ESV translation says, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. The New American Standard Bible says, Mary 
anoints Jesus. And that is what happened as we just read it. But there's only one verse devoted to Mary anointing Jesus. That's verse 3. There are five verses devoted to Judas's response and then Jesus's subsequent rebuke of Judas's response. One to five. Now, I think what John is doing here is what he's been doing already as one of the sub-themes and subplots of the Gospel of John. I mentioned it last week, that Jesus is the cause of division among people. He was in the first century. He is in the 21st century. Jesus divides people, and we clearly see in the other instances throughout John's Gospel, it's been large groups of people who were divided over Jesus. Here, it's two people who were divided over Jesus, Mary and Judas. John describes in verse 2 that, again, this meal was given in honor of Jesus. It's for him. It was not, by the way, in Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house. Uh, This is recorded in two other gospel accounts, in Matthew and in Mark. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that this dinner in honor of Jesus actually took place at Simon the leper's home. Have you ever been, been invited to a leper's home? I would say probably not. Well, a leper doesn't host a dinner party unless he's no longer a leper, right? Why is he no longer a leper? I think it's good to assume that Jesus healed Simon. So think about it. Two of the guests, Jesus is the honored guest, but two of the other guests are a former leper that Jesus healed and a former cadaver that Jesus raised from the dead. Talk about interesting conversation at a dinner party. John also describes them as, uh, in verse 2, as Martha serving Martha served. A lot of times Martha can kind of get a bad rap because in Luke chapter 10, Jesus kind of kindly rebukes her because Martha came to Jesus and said, would you do something with Mary? I'm here doing all the work and she's just sitting at your feet talking. And Jesus kind of kindly rebukes her for having an out of order priorities. But guess what? We need Martha's, don't we? In fact, in in that Luke chapter 10 account, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Not Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha. If you ever get called twice by the name Martha, Martha, or Troy, Troy, you know a correction's about to come. But here we see Martha served. It's the same verb for deacon. She deaked here. She served. And we need deacons, don't we? We need servants. And so I'm thankful for Martha and her service. John also describes that they were reclining at the table. And this is the customary way they would, in the first century, gather together for a dinner together. If you have in your mind, let's say, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, and here are all these disciples and Jesus just on one side of the table, which is a little odd. They're all facing the camera, right, perfectly. This is not how people reclined at the table in the first century. More like this next picture, they would be kind of gathered together around this table, leaning on cushions, maybe a short uh, ground-level couch, and their feet would be fanning outwards as they circled around the table. This is kind of what's happening in this meal at Simon the leper's home. And obviously, Jesus' feet would be now very accessible for for Mary to come and anoint. But again, I think what John's doing here is he's putting for us a juxtaposition between Mary's response to Jesus and Judas's response to Jesus. And then there's a third character I want us to consider in this story, and that is Jesus's response to the two of them. Three things on your outline I want us to consider. The first one is this. Number one, in Mary, I want us to see an adoration of worship. There is in Mary an 
adoration of worship. Now, if I were to ask you, which one do you most identify with in this passage, with Mary or with Judas? Your knee-jerk reaction would probably be, oh, with Mary. I identify with Mary. But I would say, not so fast. Not so fast. I want us to think about all that's going on here in Mary's adoration of worship of Jesus as she anoints his feet with expensive perfume. And I want perfume, and I want to make a couple of honest observations from this act of worship. First of all, Mary's worship, it is absurd. It's absurd. John uses language here so that we can see the absurdity, that we can see the extravagance. Look again, he says, Mary, therefore, took a pound, not a little bit, a lot of expensive, not cheap stuff, you get on the shelf at Walmart, expensive ointment made from pure nard, not watered down, it's the high-level concentrate. If you have an ESV, the, the footnote probably says that a pound there was 11 and a half ounces, so about the size of a can of Coke, not a little bit. It's a lot, and it's expensive. We learn from Judas, among others, that this ointment, this pound of pure nard concentrate could be sold for 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wage in the first century. Uh, it is what people would be um, paid for one day of labor, one day of work. They didn't take five-day weeks, or like some people want to do now, take four-day work weeks. Oh, my goodness. They had six-day work days. They didn't work weeks. They didn't take work on the Sabbath. And there were multiple holidays, Jewish holidays, when they weren't, wouldn't work. But on average, somebody would work about 300 days a year. So 300 denarii would be a year's salary, a year's wage. Let's just use a round average salary for people today. Let's say $50,000. This perfume... This ointment is worth 50 grand. What? That's exorbitant. That's over the top. I Googled this week, most expensive perfumes. <laughs> You'll try that sometimes. It's ridiculous. You will gag at what people spend on things, as I did. Coming in at number two on the list was this perfume, Clive Christian, number one, Imperial Majesty Perfume. I want you to see the description of this perfume this is a sophisticated scent for women who want a perfume that is both weightless and enchanting. Ooh. The scent is that of a light, enchanting scent of Tahitian vanilla with a hint of Rosa Sintafolis that is reminiscent of the goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. I didn't know we knew what Aphrodite smelled like, but apparently they do. At the heart of the perfume is Ylang Ylang and will give women a sense of wearing a perfect diamond necklace around their neck. Their perfume sell smells, sells for $12,721 per ounce. Anybody wearing that this morning? If you were, you probably wouldn't admit it, right? This is ridiculous. This is over the top. Absolutely absurd. And what does Mary do? The other gospel accounts tells us, tell us she took the jar and she broke it and poured the ointment, the perfume, on Jesus' feet, on his body, and anointed his head. Come on, Mary, a little dabble do you, right? You don't need to pour all of it out, but she does. She splatters it all over Jesus. Where did she get this from? How does she get this $50,000 bottle of perfume? Perhaps it was an inheritance from a dead parent. 
Perhaps it was her dowry. We don't know. We can speculate. Perhaps she acquired it in some way and she used it, sold off a little bit of the concentrate every month to pay for her living expenses. Perhaps they were a very wealthy family, as some suggest, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But even at that, if you've known anybody that has, well, let's say, great wealth, they are usually cheaper than most. Would you agree with that? They don't just waste things. Even if they're very wealthy, this is an exorbitant amount of money. She pours out $50,000 in a matter of minutes. It's absurd. It's absurd. But not only is it absurd, this is awkward. It is awkward. John says she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Anybody ever seen anybody do that before? I have it. We don't normally see women anointing men's bare feet with perfume and then wiping it up with their hair. We don't see it in our day, and guess what? They didn't see it in their day. This was not the normal practice for people to do. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they were sitting around this table, reclined down, kind of on their elbows or on a cushion, feet fanned out, and so she was able to sneak around and get right behind Jesus and begin to anoint his feet. She broke the flask. She poured it all on him. There's no putting this back in the bottle. She's covering Jesus, and amazingly, she wipes his feet with her hair. In the ancient world particularly, a a lady, a single lady, letting her hair down in public would have been very uncouth and even scandalous. And she uses her hair as a towel to wipe the Lord's feet. There's no way to describe this other than anything as it being extremely awkward. This broke all societal norms. And as I look around the room this morning, myself included, we don't go out of our way to break societal norms. We're dressed pretty much the same way. Our hairstyles are very similar. We don't want to go outside those boundaries of what our modern sensibilities will allow. She broke all societal norms. I want you to think about if you were at that dinner and you were sitting beside Jesus, and then you see Mary start to do this, how would you feel? (laughs) Right? You ever been in a really nervous situation? You get this churning in your stomach, your pit starts smelling. Oh, You wanna get up and leave, but you know that'll even be more awkward if you get up and leave the situation. You wish you could slip out. So you sit over there hoping Come on, be done soon. Get out of here. This, make this awkward situation end quickly. This is weird. People don't do this. You know, if you ever happen to go to New York City, you will experience some weirdness. Amy and I went there about a year ago, and we were exposed to some things that you're not normally exposed to here in the South. As we visited there, we went on a boat ride, and we um, uh, saw the city, and One thing that was ubiquitous in the city, pot smell, marijuana. It was everywhere. You couldn't get away from marijuana smell. Further, um, when you go, we went through Times Square. We walked from Battery Park all the way to Times Square, and we saw a lot of, well, weirdness. 
but even especially riding the subway. Because if you're walking down, we rode it about a half a dozen times to go to the places we wanted to go. If you're walking down the street and you see weirdness, well, you can cross to the other side of the street. If you're in this tin can, you're stuck there. And people get on to the next stop and they start doing things and buskers come in, they're dancing and they're looking at you waiting for money. It's weird, it's awkward. It's like, okay, I'm gonna look down. And these other New Yorkers care about what's happening. I'm gonna try to blend in like I don't care about this weirdness. And this is what's happening here. It is completely weird and awkward. What causes someone to do something so absurd and so awkward is what Mary has done at this dinner party in Jesus' honor. What kind of person exhibits such an outlandish display? Someone who has gotten just a small glimpse of the majesty and the magnificence of Jesus. That's who. Jesus raised her dear brother from the dead. Some have suggested that this was a, the design of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, that they colluded together, okay? Uh, Lazarus, you sit beside Jesus as the honored guest. Martha, you're going to serve the meal, obviously, because you always serve the meal. Mary, you take our $50,000 perfume and you anoint Jesus. People that have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord do absurd and awkward things. But not only was this absurd and awkward, this isn't on your outline, but there's three things else I want you to see about Mary's worship. You might want to write these down. Her act of worship was courageous. It was courageous. Again, I told you earlier in chapter 11, it ends with a strict order from the religious leaders. If anybody knows the whereabouts of Jesus, you must tell us. Did Mary know the whereabouts of Jesus? Of course she did. She could be charged as an accessory. Faithful disciples of Jesus put their devotion to Christ ahead of their own safety. Her worship was also costly. I've already mentioned that it was costly. But it demonstrates the reality of her love and her affection for the Lord. Her sacrificial gift it causes us to ask some questions. It causes us to evaluate our own devotion to the Lord. What price am I willing to pay in devotion to Christ? Or here's another question. What is your most treasured possession? Is it your house? Is it your children? Is it your retirement account that's Losing a little money nowadays? Is it your occupation? Your lifestyle? Your travel? Is it your own self-image of some kind of worldly acceptance within the circles that you travel? Are you willing to pour out your most treasured possession in an act of worship of Jesus? Mary's worship is courageous, it is costly, but thirdly, it is contrite. In the first century, as today, it was considered beneath people to wash the feet of others. Even bond slaves in the first century had particular rights, and one of the rights of a bond slave in the first century was that they could not be required to wash their master's feet. And here comes Mary, touching and anointing Jesus's feet. It becomes her pledge of unconditional service. 
Why? Because followers of Jesus humbly give away their rights. And think about it. In just a matter of days, Jesus, with the aroma of nard still on him, will go plate by plate, table by table, to his disciples, pick up their smelly, unpleasant feet, and he will wash them. Jesus, the master, washes the servant's feet. Followers of Jesus humbly give away their rights because Jesus humbly gave away his rights. Philippians 2 instructs us, really commands us to have this identical, humble attitude in mind. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, even though he was in the form of God. And he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know what the mantra of our day is? Know your rights. Defend your rights. Stand up for your rights. The call of Christ is give away your rights. Humbly, contritely. You know, one of the disciples whose dirty, stinky feet Jesus would wash in just a couple of days was Judas's feet. He would pick them up, knowing full well what was in the intent and heart of Judas. And that leads to the second thing I want us to see from this passage. Not only the adoration of worship we see from Mary, but an accusation of waste from Judas. His accusation begins in verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas says it's a complete waste. Of course, John lets us know, and again, this is after the fact. The disciples didn't know this. At the time, they weren't aware of Judas's heart. But John lets us know in his commentary, Judas didn't care about the poor. He had no concern for the poor. In fact, they were not even aware that Judas, who kept the money bag, he was kind of like the church treasurer, he would help himself to what was in the money bag. Jesus and his disciples, they had left their businesses, their fishing business, their other work pursuits to travel and be itinerant preachers. And there were several patrons and givers who helped them, support them. And Judas would help himself and skim off the top as they traveled around Palestine to preach. But guess what? It wasn't just Judas that had this idea that what Mary has done is a complete waste. All the disciples thought it. Look at the parallel accounts in both Matthew and Mark. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew tells us this, he was there. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Mark 14 says, there were some who said to themselves, not just Judas, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Again, it wasn't just Judas. It wasn't just a couple of disciples. And I dare say, if I would have been there, knowing my penchant for penny pinching, I would have had the same mindset. What a waste, Mary. Come on, it's 50 grand. They're whispering to each other, it's, it's a pure nard. Matthew, you're the money guy. What is that worth? Oh, let me do some calculations. Year's salary, $50,000. Now, there's a lot of things we could have done with that money. We could start a soup kitchen. 
We could house the homeless. We could feed the hungry. We could start a clothes closet. We could help the poor immensely with that much money. And on the surface, it does seem like their point is defensible. Even still, even though we know there are many biblical imperatives to us, injunctions, we are to care for the poor. The Old Testament and New Testament alike, this is what children of God do. If you're a covenant member of Lookout Valley Baptist Church, the covenant that you agree to as a member says, in part, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the relief of the poor. It's what we're called to do, right? We're to care for the poor. But Judas here is using the poor in a way that many people use, quote, the poor. Kind of like a two-by-four to give some accusation against somebody. Oh, you went to the movies this weekend? Uh-huh, how much did that cost you? What about the poor? I saw you went on vacation. Did you have fun? What about the poor? Huh? Oh, you got you a new car. That's great. What about the poor? This week on Monday, I went on YouTube. I, was just, I usually watch news videos on YouTube, but there were some suggested videos on the side, and one of the suggested videos for me to watch is the live stream from the Asbury service at Asbury University that, yes, is still going on 24-7 every day. So I clicked on it, and I watched some of the live stream of the Asbury University service with the students worshiping and leading in music and sharing testimonies. And if you've ever watched a live video on YouTube, there is this sidebar where people make live comments. I've always said, don't read the comments, but guess what? I read the comments. This comment popped up from a lady who I'm sure is a very kind and gracious woman, but here's what her comment said, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm sick and tired of seeing churches full of people when there are still homeless and hungry people out on the street. Your religion means nothing as long as there are poor people in your community. Bang, two by four, right upside the head. This is worthless that what you're doing here if there are the poor. The poor is used as this rhetorical device to bring accusation. Again, I'm not dismissing our obligation to the needy, but Judas is not the first, and he certainly wasn't the last to use the poor as a rhetorical advice to his own advantage. I can just hear Judas saying to Jesus, Jesus, what about all the poor people? Totally hypocritical. And also what this comment implies, both Judas's and this woman on YouTube on Monday, and even people that may watch our live stream. There are so many other things you could be doing as Christians than gathering together and singing songs. Guess what? The worship of Almighty God is our highest priority. Above anything and everything, the gathered people lifting up worship to God is of utmost importance, even above caring for the poor. I told you earlier that what we see here is another highlight of the division that Jesus brings. Here it's a division between Mary and Judas. And here's the basic division I see. Look at this next slide. Mary was only concerned about what she could give to Jesus. Judas was only concerned about what he could get from Jesus. We know that just in a few days, Judas will betray his relationship with the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. 
Most scholars believe that the silver that Judas was paid with is probably the most common silver coin, silver currency of the day, a denarius. Judas was paid off for 30 denarii. Mary poured out in a matter of moments 300 denarii. See that? A tenth of what Mary poured out in extravagant worship, Judas sold out Jesus. But I'm afraid today there are many who even profess faith in Jesus who sell him out for a lot less than 30 pieces of silver. Many, even pastors, sell out their devotion to Jesus for 30 minutes of sex. They never count the cost until afterwards. We sell out Jesus for a good reputation in the world. High school and college students sell out Jesus to gain favor with people you're not even going to hang around in six months. We sell out Jesus for so much less than even what Judas sold Jesus out for. Judas, again, was only thinking about what he could get from Jesus. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul, who would later be converted and write most of our New Testament, if he had Judas in mind when he gave this warning to his son in the faith, Timothy, and this is a warning for us, look at 1 Timothy 6. Paul says, For we have brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think it's safe to say Judas wandered away from the faith and he was pierced with many pangs. Friends, with just hours of this moment, Judas would die at his own hands by hanging himself from a tree. Count the cost before you betray the Lord. And that leads to the third observation I want to make from this passage. In Mary, we see her adoration of worship In Judas, we see this accusation of waste. Thirdly, and real quickly, an announcement of worth. There's an announcement of worth here that comes from the lips of Jesus. I mean, really, if you think about it, Judas and the other disciples did have some kind of a point. They could have done a lot of good with $50,000. But watch again how Jesus responds to their criticism. He says, for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. What? (laughs) There's a lot of shocking things in this passage, but I think this might be the most shocking thing. What Jesus says, he's talking about himself, and he says, hey, yeah, I know there's a lot of needs in the world. I know there's a lot of hungry people out there right now, but there's nothing as important as me. Who talks like this? He could have just as easily said, guys, don't get so worked up. I'm worth it. Either Jesus was incredibly egotistical or he's God in human flesh. And if he's God in human flesh, 
he is exactly right. If he's God in human flesh, uh, it would be wrong and it would be sinful to not display and describe the absolute worth and dignity he bears in and of himself. Therefore, he's right in saying, I'm worth it. He's right in saying, you won't always have me. Mary recognized it. Judas and the other disciples did not. I'll close with this. Verse 3 concludes with this phrase. Look at it. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There was an aroma left in that room after Mary poured out a pound of expensive ointment, pure, concentrated nard imported from northern India, extracted from the very exclusive nard plant. This aroma, it stayed on Jesus, not just for a day, but throughout the week. Think about it. On Sunday, as Jesus would hop on that full of a donkey to ride from Bethany on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, he could smell her worship. As again, he would go around the upper room and wipe the disciples' feet every time he got close to one of the disciples. They could smell the nard coming off of Jesus. The aroma lingered. As he stood before Pontius Pilate and was being interrogated, Pilate had to say, what is that smell? As he was being beaten with the cat of nine tails by the torturer, they smelled the aroma of Mary's worship. And as he finally made it up the hill of Golgotha, and as the executioner is taking that iron spike to drive through his feet, he smells the nard. Leave her alone. She's saving it for the day of my burial. That worship lingered. What do you smell like? I'm not talking about your literal smell. We spend a lot of time trying to smell good. A lot of money on perfumes and colognes and potions and lotions. I say we. Middle school boys, maybe they don't. But uh, most of us spend a lot of time trying to smell good. The olfactory sense is one of our strongest senses. And when you get a smell, particularly as a child, it will embed a memory in your mind that when you smell it again, years later, it comes flashing back. When I was just a toddler, my mom bought me this plastic blow-up little pool to swim in or wade in or paddle in. And she opened up that plastic package, and I smelled that plastic pool. Every time we open up a new shower curtain, I'm taken back to my mom filling that pool up with water. I can't help it. That olfactory sensation and memory is embedded on mine. That smell brings it rushing back. What do you smell like? What's your spiritual aroma? Are you ever conscious of the aroma that's left in a room whenever you leave? Some people, when they leave a room, you can't help but smell kindness, right? Peace, hospitality, acceptance, genuine concern for other people. Others, when they leave the room, they leave behind an aroma of gossip, 
dissension, one-upsmanship, always trying to tell a story that's a little bigger, a little better than the other people's story, pride, arrogance. There's probably some people that just came to your mind when I mentioned some of those. But I'm not asking them the question I'm asking you because I asked myself this question multiple times this week. What aroma is left in the room when I leave? What does a room smell like when you're in it? What is the scent that you leave behind? It might be absurd and awkward, but it might also be courageous, costly, contrite, humble, worship of Jesus. In, in Mark's parallel account, Jesus said, leave her alone. For what she has done will be given as testimony wherever the gospel has been preached. And that includes this morning at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. The aroma of Mary's worship has filled this room. Do you want to leave a legacy? Do you want to leave a lasting mark on this world? Do you want to impact your children? Show them extravagant devotion to Jesus because he's worth every bit of it. And that leads to my last thought. True worship is never a waste.